Welcome to the SSI Orbit Podcast, a forum for conversations that explore the ever-growing ecosystems of self-sovereign identity. And I'm your host, Matsur Glaude. Today I talk with Chaitan Pohl, a fellow colleague of mine from the Toronto blockchain scene. Chaitan is a technology and data management lawyer at Deloitte Legal. His experience includes complex multidisciplinary mandates in privacy, cybersecurity, blockchain, cryptocurrency, technology audits, and more. Chaitan has many publications under his name, including a book called Big Data Law in Canada, which we'll include in the show notes. Now, in this conversation, we break down privacy from a legal perspective. We talk about how entrepreneurs need to look at complying with global data privacy laws when launching software globally. We talk about the history of data privacy laws and look at laws like GDPR. We talk about the right of erasure's effect on data ownership and control, and also the right of erasure's effect on data stored on immutable blockchain ledgers. We talk about if data privacy laws will get more complex than they are today. We talk about pseudonymity, decentralized protocols. Um, all to say, this was an awesome conversation with lots of good material, and I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Chaitan. Enjoy! I think that the whole area of consent is um, is interesting and probably rapidly um, evolving globally. I, I always, it's, it's funny, like, I, I really enjoy personally the TV show South Park. I don't know if you've ever, ever watched, uh, <laughs> oh, watched yeah. that. Like, yeah. I, I felt like they, um, they do a good job at keeping up with the commentary and like, it hasn't deteriorated. Like, I still very much enjoy it, but there was a, a particular episode of South Park Oh gosh, it might be it might be close to ten years ago now. Um, I, I can't really remember when, but um, it, it was a whole joke around one of the characters uh, consenting something to Apple without having read the terms uh, and conditions of what they were consenting to, and then they went into the they went into this whole thing, this whole stupid thing. Yeah, uh, but, but but it was funny. Um, Ahead of its time. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of conversation in the digital ID space about that and digital ID kind of um, helping solve some problems to do with consent and kind of, um, I guess, two-sided consent. Mm -hmm. um, the way I look at privacy typically and the way I, I talk about privacy to folks is like consent is one piece. I talk about transparency as well. Um, it, it, are, are these kind of the two main buckets of privacy? Like, uh, how, how do you, it's probably a pretty broad question, and I don't know if it's just from a legal lens or an overall lens, but how, how do you look at, at privacy? Yeah, I, privacy is a very broad concept in the law. And I think it's, as time goes on, we are, um, we're categorizing certain parts of privacy and sometimes even taking out those categories and making them um, uh, independent areas of law. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So my understanding of privacy, very broadly speaking, uh, encompasses security, data protection. You know, that's one traditional branch. Uh, another, another branch is personal information collection, use, and disclosure. Uh, and a third branch involves uh, a bunch of use cases for uh, personal information or, or use cases for confidential information uh, in uh, artificial intelligence and competition law. And, and so those are the, th the three main, I, I may even be forgetting one or two, but th those are the three main areas of, of privacy. And um, for authentication and um, digital ID, uh, I kind of, I see that as an 
as growing out of the concern for security and data protection. Uh, and, and meanwhile, AI uh, regulation, um, that, that's becoming more likely, uh, particularly given you know, the latest uh, uh, proposals coming out of Europe. And so it might be that AI regulation will no longer be regulated solely by you know, the use and procurement of, of training data. It, it might be regulated completely independently as its own area of law. So I, I hope that provides a, um, a nutshell definition of what privacy is and how it's evolving. And would you say, um, so, so from your breakdown, it's digital ID kind of falls within the first bucket of the security data pr protection. Um, the way I look at digital identity is it's, um, it's kind, of, kind of core to all of the different business functions that happen. And especially if you're, if you're creating these user-centric experiences, it, it could there could be elements of security data protection but there's also elements of if me sharing credentials or pii and, and just how how my pii is being used downstream as well i guess those are the three the three buckets that you kind of described under privacy yes and and you know while i was being put on the spot i actually neglected to men mention a fourth bucket which is uh commercial use of of data in general which would require consent and, um, and, and generally deals with, uh, with emailing and commercial electronic messages and that sort of thing. Um, so I think I'm gonna expand the three buckets that I, that I referenced before into four. <laughs> we got a new one. Yeah. Do the same data privacy laws kind of govern um, these, like do these four buckets, are they all encompassed within kind of single data privacy laws? Like not really, um, and it, it differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So at the present time in Europe, for example, we have GDPR and GDPR is uh, applicable across the EU, but as I understand it, there are exceptions um, in certain member states uh, with respect to certain spheres of regulation. Uh, similarly, in the US, they have, I mean, it's just a jurisdictional mess as far as I'm concerned in, in, in so far as um, the sphere of regulation and who gets to decide the answer to a particular legal question um, in terms of the level of government. So there, there's a jurisdictional grab bag, I'd like to think uh, in the US. Meanwhile, in Canada, um, it, it's, it's uh, the same but different. Um, we've, we've got a federal regulator for both the private sector and the public sector, um, but there are provincial flavors depending on what type of activity you're talking about uh, and what, what industry you're talking about, be it you know, financial or, or health or um, you know, miscellaneous private industry. So all of that is to say that there's no one single applicable privacy law for the world that would be um that would be an idyllic dream <laughs> but we're not we're not there yet as an entrepreneur if, if you're building and a lot of i guess software businesses today don't have um legal jurisdiction boundaries when uh, you could scale usage in communities globally so the, the idea is depending on 
where your product is being used, you need to be in a position of compliance with whatever local or jurisdictional data privacy laws are in place. Yes, and look, there's a difference between um, what the law is and, and what might apply to any particular venture and the enforcement mechanisms available to regulators to enforce their, their laws that may apply. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, ventures on the internet uh, will be subject globally to a variety of different regulators. As a practical matter, they probably aren't hiring counsel in every single jurisdiction in the world for compliance purposes. Uh, most likely, they're hiring counsel in a jurisdiction that has a very high threshold for compliance, and they're trying to uh, maintain compliance in that jurisdiction and hope that that meets the standard in other jurisdictions as well. Now, as the privacy landscapes develop uh, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and there are differences in, in, in how certain jurisdictions handle certain issues, I think the compliance um, endeavor is, is going to get harder and harder. Um, but that being said, the world is gradually moving in a place where there's there, there's, there's an increased uh, understanding that compliance with privacy law is important, um, but what that means from place to place is still not exactly clear. Are, are there certain data privacy laws that are kind of, um, I think people often refer to the GDPR as kind of having the, um, the most advanced or the tightest criteria or, or whatever it is. Like I, I think uh, GDPR um, seems to set the tone for the rest of the world. Um, what, what was so, um, I guess, what, what's the history of the GDPR and why, why has GDPR in the past years just become kind of the staple that it seems like the rest of the world is uh, following? So some places are more behind than others, but, but why, um, what were those key or core elements to the GDPR that really set it apart from whatever else was happening? Mm -hmm. Well, the GDPR came at a time when uh, the big data markets were proliferating globally, and, and there was a need um, in, in a jurisdiction like Europe, where privacy was previously regarded as a fundamental right, to expand what that right means. Uh, if it's to have any force in Europe as a fundamental right, they needed a, a more prescriptive document as to how that right should be dealt with. That's quite in contrast to what it's been in the United States up till about last year, the year before. Um, privacy in the United States has largely been a matter of contract, not a fundamental right. So it's not surprising that Europe would come up with, it, with um, a strict privacy law prior to the United States. But as a consequence of Europe releasing the GDPR, um, there, there, there arose a business case for other jurisdictions enacting their own privacy laws as well uh, in order to, to have consistent global operations because um, it wouldn't make sense, practically speaking, to have one set of operations for one jurisdiction and another set of operations for another major jurisdiction. So after the GDPR came into effect, uh, California enacted the uh, CCPA, and then in Canada, uh, 
Canada is in the middle of uh, something called Bill C-11, and we're uh, in the middle of drafting something called uh, CPPA uh, to be distinguished from CCPA in California. We've also got provincial laws coming out in, in Ontario and Quebec, and all of that is piggybacking off of the initial effort um, of Europe to push privacy law ahead globally. Um, and I can keep talking about this, um, you know, ad nauseum, but I'll, I'll just say that Europe is pushing the bar forward for, for so many uh, areas of, of digital regulation, not just uh, privacy. In the last year, uh, they've issued or, or they've, is, they've issued proposals of, uh, for, for Digital Services Act, uh, Digital Markets Act. Uh, they've issued a proposal for Digital ID Framework. They've issued uh, a proposal for an AI Act. Um, and all of this, I suspect, will proliferate global, globally into California and, and perhaps the rest of the U.S., uh, but more certainly... Uh, in and throughout Canada. What necessarily does the, the right of erasure mean? I, I think pe people have different understandings of that, but um, does it really put us in a space where if I am interacting with a, an organization or an entity that is complying under a GDPR or CPPA or CCPA, mm -hmm. um, the right of erasure, does that really mean that the data that a uh, an organization has on behalf of me, they don't have ownership of this anymore? If, if I can just go to them and uh, ask for data to be deleted or commercial use of it to stop or, or whatever these buckets are, that doesn't really mean we're moving to a space where um, data ownership is fundamentally changing. That's a very good question because I mean, there, there are two sets of rights here. There's the question of who owns the data, certainly, uh, but there's also the question of what rights the data subject has in respect of data, whether or not it's owned by the data subject or some other large entity. And so the right of erasure, which is still, by the way, being um, sorted out and determined, uh, is... Um, primarily getting at the data subject's right to control what information about him or herself is presented publicly, so is, is uh, freely disclosed, and uh, whether that data subject can have, can insist on the removal of that, uh, of that information in a public sphere, or can insist on the deletion of that data um, one or the other. And so in, in Canada, we're actually not sure yet. Um, there was a very recent reference in the federal court that uh, determined that Google is subject to our federal privacy law, PIPEDA, and um, that when it, when it lists uh, information in its search algorithm, it's not doing so for a journalistic purpose. Um, so it is, it is subject to the privacy law. Now, does that mean that there's a right of erasure in Canada? We still don't know. And perhaps more to the point, even if there is a right of erasure in Canada, what does that mean for enforceability outside of Canada? Uh, after all, Google's main headquarters are not, are not here in Canada. They're, they're, they're in the US. 
and there's precedent for um, Google uh, appealing to uh, rights in US law um, to not have to obey Canadian court orders uh, to delist uh, search records. So the exact content of the right of erasure uh, per jurisdiction, I believe, is still in consideration. And, and perhaps more to the point, the question of enforceability, um, that is still, is still in flux. And we have no idea yet how to deal with that, given that we, we're essentially trying to regulate per jurisdiction a technology that refuses to be kept within the bounds of any jurisdiction. It seems like it's getting more and more complicated where technology is enabling multi-jurisdictional or actually like borderless use. Um, been talking a lot lately about decentralized uh, autonomous organizations, which um, when you have all these pieces coming together with, with crypto and credentialing pieces um, and the, the whole remote work and work from home, all, all these pieces come together to make it possible now to... Um, offer new mechanisms of coordination for work or to achieve certain goals without necessarily having any reliance whatsoever on, on physical location. Um, do, you, do you think it's gonna keep becoming, this is kind of like a future question if you're looking at like 10 years from now, is it just gonna keep getting more, more complex on a global landscape because there is kind of jurisdictional boundaries when it comes to this stuff? Um, or, or is it gonna get easier at some point? Well, we're definitely in a in a phase of growing pains. But if I'm if I'm being asked now to look way into the future, um, I suspect that that we'll have to reconcile the problem we have of trying to locally regulate technology that that doesn't operate only locally. And so, what I suspect will ultimately happen whether it happens um, in the next five years or 10 years, is we'll have an international body that will oversee international regulation of the internet. Now, I know how crazy that sounds because every jurisdiction has their own uh, legal traditions that they are particularly attached to. Like, for example, in, in the United States, um, they have the, the right to free speech, which is different from the right to free speech in Canada, for example. Um, so the question of how we're going to have global regulation and how that will work per jurisdiction, um, I, I think that that's something we'll have to wrestle with. But ultimately, I do, I do think that we're going to have some form of global regulation. And in fact, we already see that to a smaller extent in Europe. Um, after all, I, Europe, the European Union is a collection of member states, um, but we have to remember that they are all separate countries. And to the extent that they have a GDPR um, and, and various other acts uh, that are proposing to regulate various spheres of big data suggests that they may be a model for how international regulation of big data will ultimately work. This does exist in other areas, right? Like what one we've heard often over the past year and a half with uh, this COVID stuff, uh, like the World Health Organization is a global regulatory body. So it's just, it's the idea. And I've thought about this a bunch too, when um, maybe a little unrelated to uh, data privacy laws, but um, 
just the, the power you're seeing, and I, I know you you think a lot about this stuff too and have opinions on it. Um, the power you see big tech companies have to to make decisions have tremendous downstream impacts. And I, I think there was never a um, there was never a protocol or ne never an international body kind of in place to govern some of these things. And then you're you're stuck with individual individual private companies <laughs> put, putting governance bodies in place to to do stuff when. Um, we maybe you're totally right. The thing that needs to kind of catch up to where where the internet has brought us is you need to have kind of independent underlying protocols or governance bodies. Yeah, and I I I think that reasoning applies beyond the internet and beyond internet technologies. Um, we're saying we're seeing similar problems in cross jurisdictional management of uh, pollution, for example, um, and also with respect to how um, disease can transfer from, from country to country. We, we can try to contain things as much as possible, but ultimately um, there has to be an international effort to, according to a unified set of principles, to regulate um, material that refuses to recognize political borders. I love the example of pollution management because you're right. It's similarly to a lot of these borderless protocols or, or softwares, uh, pollution <laughs> moves around. It doesn't have to go through a border patrol to go from one place to another. Shifting a bit back to, um, I guess, going back to the right of erasure stuff. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've spoken about this a lot over the past years, having spent a lot of time on blockchain. Um, how do you look at the right of erasure on on an immutable ledger. Um, what are the recommendations there? Is it more of, because um, you, you can't erase data if it's on an immutable ledger. So is it just, does it, is it just that it's not enforceable? Like, uh, how do you look at that? That is a wonderful question. Um, and I've, I've spent a lot of time pondering and worrying about it because on the one hand, you're right, uh, a data, a, a, a ledger, has particular utility when it's immutable that we all see the benefits of in certain contexts. Um, but there are cases where if, if PII is on that ledger, it, it may need to be removed, but that would be difficult to impossible if it's immutable. Um, and I'll give you an example, most recently in the digital ID space, uh, according to the EU's digital ID framework that's been proposed, uh, ledgers are stated to be admissible as evidence and uh, recognized for their immutable nature. Now, I'm not yet sure how to reconcile that with the GDPR, except, um, except when there's some mandate for anonymizing what gets put on the ledger and, and being reasonably sure that it can't be reverse engineered to uh, identify a person. Um, and I think that might be either more of a technical question or at least an area where the lawyers are going to have to get in the same room with the technologists to figure out how this area works. Yeah, even in, in um, the self-sovereign identity architecture that does leverage distributed ledger technology or blockchain as um, a public identity utility. 
So all, all that means is just simplifying this, but you're, you're storing information related to issuers of credentials. Because when a credential issuer issues a credential to another entity and that other entity then takes that credential and uses it as a proof, whoever is verifying that proof wants to verify that the credential that is being presented to them has been tampered with. They want to verify the provenance uh, of the issuance of this credential. So they want to know that uh, this driver's license credential that I'm, I'm being shown to open a bank account, in fact, was issued by uh, a particular government agency that has the right to do that. Mm -hmm. um, in, in this architecture, we're storing um, information relating to the issuers of credentials on a, a blockchain. Um, I'm even hearing conversations of people saying like, okay, we're, we're not storing any PII on a blockchain. That's a <laughs> bad idea. We've kind of crossed that bridge uh, some years ago that, you know what, that that's really not a good idea. But some people even look at public keys as uh, being PII because they could, they could be traced back. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, and, and we see the same basic question in um, the use of training data in the AI context as well. You know, if there's some mechanism to de-identify uh, the data in whatever form it ends up um, uh, persisting in afterward, whether it's in a database for PII use or whether it's in um, a blockchain format, the question ultimately is, can, can there be some sort of reverse engineering to identify the person? And I don't know that that the lawyers are going to be all that helpful here. I, th I think this is where we really have to lean on the technologists because while some technologists will firmly state, no, you know, de-identified data cannot be reverse engineered. Um, there seems to be a, a camp, um, small and growing that yes, de-identified data in certain cases can be reverse engineered, whether we're talking about data that's written to a blockchain or um, used in some other context. So at that point, then you have to ask whether there's a contravention of privacy law, and that's where the lawyers will get in. But the initial conversation, I think um, it, it's one of technology uh, more than law. Fair enough. Um, so, so we've covered um... A little bit about data privacy laws here and talking about GDPR, Europe kind of um, uh, ahead in the race here and the rest of the world is, is following on uh, things pertaining to data privacy. Um, more recently, we're seeing a lot more movement in digital identity law. Um, what, what's happening in that sphere is Europe still kind of ahead of the game uh, on the digital ID law. Europe is still very much ahead of the game. Uh, just this year, it released in, uh, a digital identity framework, which criticized uh, something ca called EIDAS, which uh, was the, the prior framework within Europe for digital ID. And uh, the digital ID framework over there has an aim of uh, creating a digital single market or, or facilitating the digital single market. Um, that framework also requires all member states to issue uh, a digital ID wallet within 12 months of the framework coming into force. And uh, it prescribes mechanisms in law, uh, which presumably the technologists will, uh, will further interpret, 
to ensure for proper handshaking, uh, breach handling, cross-border recognition of, of uh, technological frameworks, credential management, etc. Um, so it's the first framework of its kind, and I, I think um, it, it's likely again to be adopted both in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, more so in Canada, perhaps, than the U.S., because the U.S. already has a U.S. NIST framework that, that may form the basis for how the law is developed down there. I, I'm not quite sure. But the point being is that the, um, the emphasis on digital ID framework and, and uh, what it means for commerce over there will surely become a use case or, or um, uh, it, it'll surely be uh, viewed here in Canada as uh, a model uh, while we continue to craft our own laws. Right now in Canada, all we have in terms of legislation is PIPEDA, uh, which will soon be overtaken by the CPPA. And uh, those legislations ref reference security safeguards. Um, now, once the CPPA comes into effect, security safeguards will become more actionable with you know, $25 million fines and and fines of 5% global revenues on corporations and potential director and officer liability. Um, so there will be um, more enforceability with respect to proper digital ID safeguards, but it's still not spelled out as, as thoroughly as we'd like, which is why I think uh, Europe will be a model for Canada. Um, and other than our legislation, we've got Government of Canada public sector directives and regulatory guidelines, which aren't particularly enforceable. Uh, we have the DIAC and Pan-Canadian Trust Framework, but um, that's not complete and, and effective yet. <laughs> so again, all eyes are on Europe. Um, I've discussed a lot of this, a lot of our present framework in chapter five of my book, Big Data Law in, in Canada. Um, so for anybody interested in seeing what the present digital authentication framework is, um, I, I would direct you to that source. Yeah, and we'll put the, the link for your book in, in the show notes. So anyone interested to, uh, to check it out could do so. Um, you mentioned new forms of liability for, for directors. So is this kind of um, uh, directors would be taking liability if they don't apply the right safeguards? Is this kind of a cybersecurity um, story or, or what is that specifically? It's not only a cybersecurity story. It's, it's so directors and officers have always had the potential of in, of incurring director and officer liability, and 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 uh, this liability would emerge from the duty of care and fiduciary duties, which are old old duties in the common law, which have persisted over um, over over years and years, uh, ultimately stemming from when Canada was uh, still a colony of the UK. The duty of care and fiduciary duties, it, it, they, they both ask the essential question of, did the director uh, perform up to a certain minimum standard required for a director? And as the privacy landscape matures, and we're seeing that it's easier to sue a company for not safeguarding your 
your personal information or confidential information as it should, that's more of an indication of where the minimum threshold is for a, a director and an officer. Um, and from what I'm seeing, the threshold required of director and officer is, is raising. Um, and, and that will continue to be the case as global privacy law trends increase as well. So, you know, to, to summarize, um, digital authentication and security safeguards in general and, and privacy duties in general um, are creating liabilities not only on corporations that are anticipated to be quite stiff, uh, but they're also creating liabilities for directors and officers. I was thinking about this earlier when we were talking about privacy, but is there a possible um, use of smart contracts to kind of codify some privacy or security safeguards to make it easier on folks to really have the proper guardrails in place when they're conducting business so they don't have to think too much about it? Is that something that is, is a good idea or even possible? I don't think it's an idea that cannot work. I think it's an idea that requires more legal infrastructure to work in a predictable way. Um, there are many use cases and there have been for some time. And uh, from what I'm seeing, we're getting closer to the point where uh, the frameworks are being drafted. They're, they're, they're not quite in place just yet. Um, but in, in terms of having it as an ongoing part of a business, relying on frequent contracts and contract execution, to date, I haven't, I haven't seen it uh, in practice actually being fulfilled. But I've seen a million and one projects that are uh, being pushed ahead to try to make this happen. So I, th I think it's a matter of time and ultimately this will prevail. And if I recall correctly in Vermont, uh, and I referenced also in, in Europe within the digital ID framework, ledgers are presumed admissible now. Um, so presumably that would mean that, that, that smart contracts written to a ledger or uh, evidenced by a ledger in some form, um, they as well gain additional legitimacy um, through having the ledger presumed admissible. So little by little, uh, we're, we're getting in a place where smart contracts can be, um, and they're getting closer to what a real contract can achieve on an automated scale. Um, but that's not to say that, that lawyers will be taken out of, of uh, the equation anytime soon, because at any time when you have a, an agreement, whether it's in a smart contract or whether it's traditional, there's going to have to be consideration uh, for, for very basic uh, parts of the agreement. Like for example, which jurisdiction's law should apply to the agreement? Um, this is going to be important when you have a smart contract that uh, is supported by a blockchain crossing jurisdictions. You know, If there's a dispute later on, uh, which jurisdiction's law will apply? Uh, and moreover, where will the dispute be heard? You know, the, these are, only two of the fundamental questions of contracting that smart contracts will still have to address. And you can build them into the small, smart contract for sure. Um, but as the contracting issues become more complex, you're going to find that you'll want custom treatment for a lot of these issues. Um, so I, 
I, I think the automation is great uh, and it will be great when it gets here, but legal care will, will still be a thing. It's not like that's going away uh, after automation increases with uh, contract execution. Yeah, I think that across any space, automation is probably a good thing, right? Where it allows people to just focus on more custom or more creative work. And anyways, automation, uh, I guess, downstream will breed new problems to solve for. So it's it's not like, uh, mm -hmm. I think humans are good at being at being creative and finding creative workarounds and, and coming up with solutions like that. So automation just um, breeds more of that type of work, which I, I think just accelerates innovation in general. Right, and actually, as you're speaking, I thought of yet another issue that has to be addressed in virtually every transaction that occurs with a smart contract, and that's what happens when your interface with the blockchain fails for whatever reason, uh, you know, be it a bug or be it, um, I don't know, in inadequate data transfer uh, to complete a handshake or, or whatever. Um, who, who do you blame, you know? And is there a way to disclaim liability somehow? These are all issues that have to be carefully considered for high value contracts. Yeah, that's what one of the things definitely uh, I'm seeing in referring back to basically a set of smart contracts and other stuff, but th these DAOs where it's like, it's basically um, exactly like you said, what, what happens when something goes wrong? Um, who, who, who's taking liability for that? And, then, and a lot of the infrastructure that's in place today uh, the infrastructure supports that, um, but but in these new models, um, when things are kind of distributed and autonomous, and um, a lot of the times too, in in the whole blockchain space, uh, they're anonymous or pseudonymous to, to some extent. Like, how do you um, who's to blame for that? If if people lose hundreds of millions of dollars because uh, of a smart contract bug, then what? Yeah, yeah. C can we now go after the developers? Um, because as a very common um, provision in developer contracts, software is uh, sold as is with, you know, all, all bugs it might come with. Now, there are ways to um, contract around that, but uh, it, let's say that the common provision applies in the case of a smart contract and the developer has completely disclaimed liability for bugs. And let's say they're successful with such a disclaimer. Um, that potentially creates a very unjust result for somebody who has nobody uh, to blame when they lose a pile of money due to a bug. True, I, I just find it um, quite fascinating that in uh, the crypto space there, there's I think we're, we're going to keep seeing more and more of this. So just this whole pseudonymous identity movement where you have um, so, someone with a uh, just like a, a frog avatar and a Twitter account that is uh, kind of responsible for executing smart contracts for tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, so, so, so it's quite funny. So um, and and to be honest, I I really don't see that slowing down like it. it these protocols are just creating more and more accessibility for for people to, to build these types of solutions. So uh, who knows how that's gonna, how that's going to play out? Because um, it's kind of like running running R and D tests, but on a uh, not in an R and D lab, but on uh, on networks that you know have uh, millions and millions of or billions of dollars on there. 
Right, and, and that brings to mind another question about what happens when digital authentication uh, technology is ready to go mainstream. At that point, will governments take a more active uh, position and require digital authentication to the extent that everybody can be identified? And uh, you know, perhaps it's foreseeable that they may do this on the basis that uh, while everybody has the right to conduct various sorts of activity online, there's a real question as to um, every, whether they can uh, escape accountability for what they do online, right? Like, because you have the right to do something doesn't mean that you can do so with impunity. So on that basis, uh, I'm saying it's, it's, there's potential for pseudonymous activity to be uh, clamped down on by government authorities. Now, I, I'm perhaps thinking a little bit too far into the future, and maybe I'm thinking with uh, a bit of a dystopian lens here, but um, I, I think it needs to be acknowledged as one of the one of the potential outcomes of how the internet is evolving um, and, and how digital authentication um, technology and laws are moving forward. Yeah, because I, I guess at the end of the day, a, a government-backed ID or government-issued ID is um, is a, a one form of identification for someone, right? It just says that I'm um, I'm a legal person, and it's been kind of attested to by uh, a certain state or province or nation-state, whatever. Um, on on the online world, and with more and more digitally native. Uh, interactions and business interactions happening online, there's a lot of use cases where that that type of ID, that government issued ID actually doesn't matter to what the people are trying to do. I'd much rather know that um, someone has a, a certain amount of followers on Twitter, or I'd rather know that a, a person has so many commits to a certain GitHub repository, or it's uh, uh, these identity credentials just become more than just people always go back to uh, you know, digitizing a driver's license or digitizing a passport. Um, mm -hmm. It's a lot broader than that. And I think the more and more businesses and use cases that we see online, the more and more forms of identification um, outside of government issued IDs become, I guess, interesting for, for these protocols or for these, uh, these online interactions. Yes, agreed. And, and as with many areas of technology and regulation, it cuts both ways. Uh, because it enables certain freedoms in the digital markets um, with a reasonable degree of confidence in your activities uh, and a reasonable degree of confidence that other people can't pretend to be you. But at the other end, there may be incentives, as I discussed before, um, for, for governments to require digital authentication where it wasn't required before. And so then there's issues of whether um, not having the ability to perform activities anonymously or pseudonymously is contrary to other rights, like the right to free speech, just for example. How do you look at cybersecurity as it pertains to data privacy law and digital ID law? Like, I, one of there's a big trend right now, just in, in the whole technology space. Um, it, it is a trend that is um, serving to the benefit of self-sovereign identity. Um, it's the whole trend of like the not wanting to create new honeypots of personal information, right? Because 
um, that creates a honeypot of valuable data and that creates incentive for uh, breaches or, or hackers to, to go in there and, and gain access to that data. So there, there's a whole movement towards um, the movement of data to the edge or the distribution of data. I think that's a big reason that digital authentication is a concern at all. Um, but digital authentication goes beyond just cybersecurity. It goes into confidence of the markets and the health of the markets to ensure um, you know, an easy uh, to use digital marketplace. Um, but traditionally, yes, digital authentication as I view it is uh, a security safeguard. And I say that because the presently enforced legislation, at least here in Canada, references security safeguards. And that's traditionally where digital authentication was considered to have relevance. But um, when you look at the new proposed frameworks in Europe, they're going way beyond um, the original purposes for digital authentication. And, and so that's where Canada, I, I foresee, will eventually go as well. Thanks for tuning in today. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. To stay up to speed with future episodes, or to catch up on ones you may have missed, make sure to check out the SSI Orbit podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And make sure you subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or wish to see someone in particular on a future episode, you can find me by searching Metzger Glowed on LinkedIn or Twitter. Feel free to reach out to me directly and I'll get back to you. See you all next time. Thank you.